Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the final day of the Hay Literature Festival and also to the final event of the Cambridge series in association with Cambridge University. Our final speaker is a reader in bio bioengineering in the mechanics, materials, and design division and is a member of the biomechanics research group at the Department of Engineering at the University of Cambridge. In this fascinating and important talk, we will learn about the true cost of steel and concrete construction in terms of carbon footprint and how biomechanics can and perhaps needs to provide a solution to how better we develop our structures. So please give a perfectly engineered and structured applause and welcome Dr. Michelle Oyen. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. And of course, it's one of those things that you get invited to do many, many months in advance. And you don't know what's going to happen in the world between then and now. Um, and of course, it just turned out that this was the week that the president of my home country uh, decided to blow up um, American diplomatic relations with the rest of the world over the topic of climate change, which is the subject of my talk. So that was a little bit interesting. In my defense, just to make it clear, I live here. Um, I am in my 11th year at the University of Cambridge, um, and I have no intention of going back. <laughs> So with that fine segue, um, I want to tell you a little bit about my background because it's not in the area of climate change, or at least it didn't start out that way. Um, I am a bioengineer. I'll tell you a little bit more about my research in a bit. But this is actually um, a picture of how I started getting motivated and interested to look into this question of climate change. Um, this is the view from... Um, a beach house that I vacation at every year. Now you can say, well, why is this important to the talk? Well, this is where it's located, and more specifically, um, this is where it's located. So this is on Barrier Islands in North Carolina, so about five hours south of uh, Washington, D.C. area. And this picture is actually from one of these fantastic sites that you can go to where you can simulate what happens if the oceans rise. So this is the current situation. In the upper left-hand corner, you can see it says zero meters, so that's the current sea level situation. If we go plus six meters, then you start to see a little bit of a problem. And if you start to go plus 13 meters, the entire region has been completely wiped out. Not just the barrier islands, but also the low-lying areas quite a few miles inland, including the entire way to get there across the Wright Brothers Bridge, because this is in fact in the area where Kitty Hawk is, where the first flight took place, which means it's a great place to go fly kites. Um, but it's, 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 it's a personal interest of mine, and, and I guess I think it's important to say that there's a personal effect to every one of us about climate change. We don't necessarily have a good sense of what's going on in the grander world, and the modeling is difficult. These sorts of projections are, are unclear in terms of exactly what year my beach house will no longer be there. Um, but it, is, it's a, it affects me personally, and this is the way I like to think about that. 
Now, as I said, I'm trained as a bioengineer, and I came to this field working in the area of orthopedic biomechanics. So these are some x-rays. This is actually of a friend of mine. He broke his fibula, which is the smaller bone in your lower leg, going down to the ankle. And as you can see, there's a lot of metal hardware there. I actually did my PhD on how bone heals when you put metal screws into it. You get stress shielding of the bone because the metal is much, much stiffer than the bone, and this causes real problems for the healing, which is why sometimes they take plates out like this, um, and also why things like total joint replacements can fail in a relatively short period of time, because you're putting a lot of metal into the body when the stiffness is not matched. And so this is where I came to it. Now, in terms of, of the global carbon footprint and thinking about climate change, I, being a person who moved here, um, and of course thought that my biggest contribution to climate change was the fact that I fly back and forth transatlantically far more often than I should. Now, the airlines try very much to individually guilt you about doing this, because when you go to purchase an airplane ticket, these days there's a little button you can push to say, oh, I want to offset my carbon for that flight. And this really got me thinking, is that the single biggest thing that I'm doing as an individual to hurt the environment and to make global warming into a bigger problem? Now, we all know things that we do do individually that contribute to the carbon footprint. We consume power. One of my favorite anecdotes about this is, are you familiar with Earth Hour? Every year, there's a, a, a one hour of time that's designated where you're supposed to turn off all of your electrical goods. And it does make a difference. Power consumption goes down on average. Um, you know, maps get darker. You can really see this effect. But my favorite thing, when I realized a couple years ago, um, I happened to be on the computer because I had a work deadline, um, and so I was not celebrating. Um, and I realized how many people were live tweeting Earth Hour. So they had unplugged their phones from the mains and were happily tapping away at them, perhaps not thinking about the fact that they were still using power even if they weren't connected to the mains. It was just stored in the battery and it was going to have to be recovered because of course they were going to have to plug back in to the charger after the event was over. I think that's a good example of how we consume so much power that we just don't think about what we're doing. So that's something that we can think about. And the good news in what has been a bad week of climate news is that the United States is actually on target to meet the Paris agreement. So Trump is just playing politics, and we're already on target. The technologies for clean energy are improving. So that piece of the overall energy puzzle is looking quite good. What is interesting, though, is if you look at the overall picture, so this is a pie chart, and it's slightly dated because it's not always easy to get your hands on this information um, without paying lots of money for the most recent report. So I apologize for the fact that this is the 2009 picture, but it does actually sort of match the current picture. And so what this is, is this is the total contribution to the global carbon footprint from different industries. So in blue, of course, taking out the biggest wedge, we have 
power generation, exactly as you would expect. Um, the next wedge, small in red there, is other things to do with industry, or with uh, energy. The green one is industry. The purple one is transport. And at this point, I should point out that actually that wedge that's transport is only a fraction due to the global airline industry. The biggest contributor to the global carbon footprint in terms of transport is lorries on the roads. So it's heavy trucking. Okay, industry. Well, what exactly is industry? Well, if we take the industry pie and just look at it by proportion, the first 31% is iron and steel. The next 17% is minerals associated with cement and therefore concrete. So that means that just shy of 50% of this total industry wedge is materials, and two materials alone, steel and concrete. Now it turns out that if you uh, look at the numbers for the entire global airline industry, it's less than either of those on their own. So either steel or concrete is contributing more to the global carbon footprint than all of aviation. Now, this makes me feel better because I do like to go home. <laughs> I like to visit my family. It's difficult living 4,000 miles away from everyone you know. But this really got me thinking. And in fact, this was when I first started thinking about the global carbon footprint as something other than a private citizen who likes to visit the beach. And in fact, this was brought to my attention at a materials research meeting. So I was at a materials research society meeting. They have these lunchtime seminars where they offer free pizza. And I was a graduate student at the time. And when you are a graduate student and there is free food on offer, you will always go to wherever the free food is. The talk that day was being given by uh, the German environmental minister, and he was there to talk about this exact problem. And that was the first time it was drawn to my attention, and that was a number of years ago now. So what we're doing as we, as engineers, are constantly pushing the boundaries to build taller, more interesting, more innovative structures, and of course, building them with steel and concrete as their absolute structural foundation, we're actually contributing a lot more to the global carbon footprint than probably we ever thought of or realized. Now this started me thinking, again, this was back when I was a graduate student, and one of the things that we were doing, um, in addition to studying how natural bone healed, we were studying what happened if you tried to make artificial bone. So this is a material like any other, and this is one of those things that is maybe not always obvious, that a lot of what's in your body is not the living biological cells, it's actually material, it's structural stuff around. And I'll talk about that more in a little bit. So what I started thinking about is what if we were making artificial bone not 
for filling in large bone defects due to trauma or due to tumors. But what if we started thinking about bone like a building material? Like what would possibly happen if we took a bone-like material and built structures with it and therefore went ahead and had a natural material instead of the sorts of things that we use as engineers. Now, of course, that wouldn't be the first time anyone had used a natural material. And in fact, we used to be really fantastic, really excellent timber engineers. So this is a, um, a picture from Edinburgh, and it's a, a timber vault ceiling. And there are many such examples. Um, I also live relatively close to the Ely Cathedral, and the camera, the tower of the cathedral, has magnificent, enormous thousand-year-old trees up there being the structural elements. And interestingly enough, the physical properties of bone and tree wood are remarkably similar. So that's a piece of sort of trivia to gnaw on a little bit. Their actual compositions are very different. How they get those properties are very different. But the actual stiffness of a piece of tree wood in its dried, ready for construction state is quite similar to that of bone. Now, if you look at the energy consumed per volume of material and just compare wood with concrete and with steel, you have an enormous difference emerge. And this is where you get this contribution to the global carbon footprint. Now, why is that? Why is it that wood is so much different than concrete, is so, so much different than steel? And of course, the answer is that wood gets made in our natural environs. It is developed under ambient conditions. That means room temperature, room pressure. If you want to process the materials in order to make concrete or in order to make steel, you are talking about having to raise things up to extremely elevated temperatures for processing. So basically, you're taking that segment of the chart that was power and putting it directly into the segment of the chart that was industry by needing to have very, very high temperature furnaces in order to operate. And this is where the big difference is. Natural materials are made under ambient conditions. Engineering materials are made under elevated temperatures in particular. So kind of got me to thinking. We have nature all around us, and it's been trying to tell us something, and we're not really listening or paying attention. Because, of course, we're all used to seeing pictures like this or walking through the woods and seeing that trees are good structural materials. We know that they are good for building. And in fact, they're making a little bit of a renaissance. Um, there are plans afoot uh, from a colleague of mine from Cambridge, from the Department of Architecture, to actually build a timber skyscraper in London. And this is going on all over the world right now. There are very tall, multi-story buildings, 10 and higher stories starting to go up made of wood. That's great. There's a problem with wood. It is completely natural. So when you find the wood, it is in its as-grown condition. So natural things tend to be imperfect. 
that's just the way things go. And of course, you can see, you can have knots in the trees, you can have changes in shape, changes in direction, uh, bent branches. So actually, wood is a found object. It's not really something that you can put into the shape that you want. And of course, that's why we like concrete and steel, because we as engineers can sit down at the drafting table and say, okay, in order to make this particular building, we need to make uh, a member that's this size, and it has this strength and this stiffness, and then we can just go ahead and cast the metal or pour the concrete, whereas the trees come in whatever shape they are. So if we want to listen to nature, Maybe we go back and think about the early, early scientists who first started to think about this. What are we learning from nature, and how can we apply it in an engineering sense? And this is, of course, one of the very famous, famous drawings from Leonardo da Vinci um, of his flying machine. So one of the things that he's actually very well known for is for observing nature and being one of the first people to think about how to take what he was seeing in nature and turn it into something that looked more like an engineered object. Now, whether something like this would ever fly, mm, probably not. And of course, it actually took until 1905 for that Wright Brothers flight to take off. And um, I've been to the location where they did that flight. And it's remarkably underwhelming. They have a uh, track laid on the ground so that you can walk along the route of where it was. Um, and you realize it got a couple hundred of feet, and then it stopped. But it was still the first flight, and so that was very exciting. They, they also have marked on the ground there the second, third, and fourth. And they got longer and longer. But I digress. When did we stop? listening from nature. So da Vinci was obviously doing it. Um, when did we stop paying as much attention to that and thinking more like what a modern engineer would do? And of course, the answer is the Industrial Revolution. What happened is that technology all of a sudden snowballed, and we had new materials, cement, steel, both new in the 19th century in the era of the Industrial Revolution. And so as engineers, with these fanciful materials, we started to be able to build bridges that had longer spans, buildings that were taller, buildings that weren't just taller, but that were more sparse, such that you could have more windows and let in more natural light. When you look at old stone buildings from the late 19th century, the first thing that you notice is that their windows are much smaller, whereas you look at a modern office building and it's plate glass as far as the eye can see. Well, that's because of steel. That's because you can build a very sparse structure structure and still have it be mechanically supportive um, when you use high-strength steel in particular. Um, high-strength steels were still being developed newly in the 1970s. Um, and so we, we basically got to the Industrial Revolution. We had these magical materials. We could do things that we had never done before. And of course, as engineers, we like that. And so we started running with that. And nobody was really paying attention to what what effect that was having on the environment. Of course, around here, you can see the evidence of that still, because you see all the blackening on buildings as a result of all of the smoke from around that time. But this is the legacy that we had. And that's the legacy that was pretty much firmly in place until just after World War II. 
So this is a professor, his name is Otto Schmidt, and it just so happens, and this is completely coincidental, I swear, I only found this out recently, um, he was a professor at the University of Minnesota, which is my home state and where I did my PhD. So he had a very unusual background. He had a double degree at both his undergraduate and postgraduate level in physics and in zoology. So this is not a typical combination, or at least at that point it wasn't. Of course, we went from the era of the great polymaths, when you had people like da Vinci and Young, to increased specialization prior to World War II. Physicists were physicists, chemists were chemists, biologists were biologists, and they didn't tend to talk to each other. And in fact, what he did with this interesting background with the zoology side and with the physics side is he actually was the founder of one of the earliest biophysics departments. So that's kind of cool. That's what my PhD was in. And like I said, I only found this out over Christmas. I was doing some background reading for something else and was like, wait a minute, how did I not know this? This is part of the legacy of my field. I should know this. And that's a problem, of course. We don't teach much history of science to modern scientists. And that's something that maybe we should be thinking about. Anyway, so he coined this term biomimetics. Now, biomimetics literally means to copy life. So he, in addition to his pioneering contributions to the field of biophysics, he coined the word biomimetics, and that really started another new field, not just within physics, but in particular within engineering. Because if you're trying to copy life, that's really an engineering problem. That's not a basic science physics problem. You have a template there, you're looking at that template, you're trying to figure out what you can learn about it, and then how to go forward from there. So biomimetics, sometimes bio-inspiration if it's not a very literal copying, um, but I prefer the term biomimetics. Now, if you've thought about this for half a second, you will say, this was not new, just post-World War II. And of course, one of the people who has been credited with spending a great deal of time and effort trying to imitate nature is the architect Gaudi. Now, the thing about Gaudi that's interesting is that when you're dealing with architecture, a lot of architecture has to do with shape. And so what Gaudi was doing was copying natural forms, going away from square, boxy, rectangular windows, and going to things that had this more natural, more organic curvature. I look at Sagrada Familia and immediately think um, termite mound every single time, because that's what it looks like to me. So he was very much copying form of life, but he was not copying material. So these are still things that are being made out of concrete. He did do a little bit playing with this, and this is from the, um, the Park Gell. And um, so here we've got some really interesting constructions of natural rocks forming this sort of curved arched bridge. But again, that was found objects. So rocks, just like trees, are things that we used to build a lot of things out of because we could find them and pick them up easily, but they're in whatever shape they're in. And it's not very easy to change the shape of a rock. A tree, as I said, you can shape, but there's one kind of going at an angle showing why it wouldn't be a terribly good beam for an architectural structure. So this idea of biomimetics, as I said, this word was coined just after World War II, and it 
kind of simmered in the background for a while. So this is a literary festival, so hopefully this is a familiar tool. This is the Google Books Ngram Viewer, where you can put in words and see the frequency with which they occur in books over a period of time. Now you can see the word biomimetic is there in blue, and then two different versions of bio-inspired are there in red and green. Took off in the 1970s a little bit, but then you see something really, really big happens in about 1995. And that's when we started to really be able to process things using nanotechnology. So at the end of the day, biological structures are made by cells. Cells are micrometer in scale. The things that they produce are nanometer in scale. So once we as engineers had nanotechnology, we started being able to mimic what nature was doing. And with that, it opened up a whole bunch of new opportunities. So you can see that huge spike in biomimetics after about 95, it started to even off a little bit, but in fact, because the graph cuts off before 2010, you don't get to see what's happening now, which is that it started going back up again um, because now we've got nanotechnology and 3D printing. So as we develop more and more engineering tools and techniques for making things, we can imitate nature better and better. And so this field has been really big. Now I'm specifically today talking about materials. There are plenty of people doing biomimetics looking at motion, little tuna robots that swim, and there's a whole world out there of different ways to copy nature, different parts of nature to copy. So I will keep myself onto the topic of materials since that's what I know about, um, but it is worth noting that this is not all just the materials side of things. Okay, so we have this idea. Bone is the structural material in us. It has properties sort of similar to trees. Maybe we could copy it and use it instead of concrete. What do we do? Well, we have to study it because we have to understand what it's made of. Now, it's really easy to say what the components of bone are. We know it has mineral, we know it has protein, we know it has water. What's less easy is to understand how they're put together. And that's actually something that continues to baffle people to a certain extent. But anyway, here in the grand framework, we see the bone, the natural material, we study it, we break it down into its components, from that, we then try and synthesize our neobone, and that can be either trying to imitate the material itself and or trying to imitate the process by which the bone was formed. So understanding how the bone actually developed in a person or in an animal and using aspects of that process. And now remember, part of why this is going to give us lower energy materials is because this is happening near ambient conditions. So the difference between your body temperature and room temperature is only about 12 degrees C. So for all practical purposes, considering the difference between that and thousands in a steel processing plant, we're making a huge difference here. So bone is one material that I'm going to talk about. The other one I'm going to mention a little bit is uh, eggshell. Now, why on earth would you be interested in eggshell? Well, it turns out that it's actually remarkably tough. 
And you know that it's remarkably tough because if you try and crack it, you can see all those jagged edges there. That is the hallmark of a tough material because a brittle material is going to break, the cracks are gonna be straight and it's gonna shatter. Egg is really hard to break, and you know this. You have to work really hard to make your breakfast, pounding the egg against a flat counter, against the side of a bowl. It is not easy to break shell. And so from a pure engineering perspective, this is, an, again, an uh, interesting material because it has toughness properties different than things that we know how to make in engineering materials world compared to a natural materials world. So, I said we have to study these things. Now, this may look familiar and perhaps bring some dread to some of you because it goes back to A-level or perhaps GCSE biology. This is dividing up multicellular organisms into animals and plants, and from there you could go on and do a whole Linnaean taxonomy and get down to genus and species. But we're not gonna do that because we're trying to understand things from a materials perspective and from an engineering perspective. So if we do that and we take all of animals and all of plants, it turns out that you can say that we are all made up of only two things. We are made up of the living biological cells, and we are made up of this material, the structural stuff that keeps us from being a pile of goo on the floor, and that's called the extracellular matrix. But I always just think of that as the materials. And of course, my previous layer in the chart there was the tissues. That's just for interest. It turns out that there are only four dominant types of tissue in animals, three in plants, but all seven of those are just some combination of this cell plus extracellular matrix. If you are a biologist, then the cell part is the most interesting. And if you are an engineer, then you probably think more about the extracellular matrix. So there's a fundamental disconnect there, which is always very funny when you get those two groups of people talking to each other. Okay, so we have cells, we have extracellular matrix. What are they made out of? Well, we can actually break them down into being made of only five things with some overlap between the cells and the ECM. Cells are made of nucleic acids, so the DNA and the RNA. We've got lipids, proteins, sugars, and then extracellular matrix, lots of proteins and sugars, and then this additional component of biominerals. And biominerals are really cool because they're essentially analogs to geologic minerals, but they're made in the body in a process that's controlled by the biological cells. They're not usually spit out directly by the cells. They're usually um, control the local environment and lots of ion concentrations and things, but they are part of this basic picture. So in terms of the cells, we know we have nucleic acids. We know that DNA makes proteins. There's a picture of this process. So we have our DNA. If you unwind it, then you have your pattern of the um, individual bases. Every three of those bases codes for a protein. Those proteins get strung together and you get long chain polymers essentially, which are the proteins. And when it comes to structural materials in the body, there's one polymer to rule them all, one protein, and that is collagen. So we are usually pretty familiar with DNA being a double helix. Collagen is a triple helix. So it has three 
individual molecules, three individual proteins, and they curl together in a triple helix, and then those individual triple helices self-assemble into a fiber. And so a fiber looks kind of like this. So this is actually a picture from my own research to show you that I really, really do mean that these look like fibers. Um, the collagen is about 50 nanometers in diameter once it's gone through all these processes of self-assembly. Um, it tends to be in these extremely long strands. You don't tend to see ends. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's a beautiful fibrillar protein, and I think of it because of its role as the structural element of bones, cartilage, ligaments, all of these sorts of tissues that are materials. It's like the carbon fiber of mammals. So we have collagen. It's the single, single greatest component in our bodies of protein. So 30% of all of the protein in your body is collagen. This is very important stuff. So we have it, it forms into these fibrils, and in fact, these fibrils are everywhere, not just in your body, but in other places in nature. So this is the membrane on the inside of an eggshell. So when you break an egg, you might notice sometimes you have to kind of poke your finger through something that's kind of stretchy and rubbery. Well, that's this eggshell membrane, and that eggshell membrane is made up of these collagen fibrils. So you can see here, as opposed to the previous picture where they were going kind of all along in one direction, here they're kind of randomly oriented within the plane, but it's the same stuff. It's exactly the same stuff. Both of those pictures are of fibrillar type 1 collagen, and that collagen is extremely important um, because it is onto that collagen that minerals deposit. So you can have minerals such as this, which is uh, calcium phosphate. That's your bone mineral. So when you have bone form, the cells lay down a protein matrix of this collagen, and then the hydroxyapatite or calcium phosphate just precipitates down onto that, and that's where you get that stiff component of your bones. And um, if you have the eggshell, it's calcium carbonate. So instead of PO4s, it's CO3s. But the basic idea is the same. And in both cases, the key to this whole process is that there's something about the thermodynamics of that collagen that causes mineral from a, a sort of slurry fluid around that's got these ions in it to precipitate onto the collagen. If the collagen's not there, the mineral doesn't form. So it has to form in the presence of this collagen. And so, as I said, this comes back and forth. There's many, many tissues for which this is true, many, many materials for which this is true. The cells make the protein matrix, and then the mineral deposits on it. In fact, if you go back to the eggshell membrane, you might notice some little bumps in between. So you can see the fibrillar collagen there that has the nice fibers just like we saw before. But then there are some bumps, and in fact, those are the spots where the eggshell starts to form. So in fact, with a chicken, you have this membrane that forms containing all of the chicken egg guts, but at first it's really soft. There's nothing about it that has the sort of strength of a finished egg. And what happens is the calcium carbonate starts to deposit, and it starts to deposit on that shell membrane on those little bumps. And then it grows from there. And in fact, the thing that amazes me the most, and which it's so hard when you can't 
ever leave your research because you're in the kitchen cooking in the morning and you take out your eggs and cracking and thinking, oh my goodness, this shell was formed in only 18 hours under ambient conditions. So to achieve something with the stiffness, the toughness of eggshell, it's formed under chicken body conditions in only 18 hours. And so that is a quite good material and that's exactly why we're imitating it. So I said we got interested in bone because it was obviously a structural element. Well, I got interested in chicken shell because it forms really, really quickly. And so it shows the promise for actually scaling these types of materials up to the scale of being able to build with them. And that's the part that we have to understand. That's where the science is. Now, the interesting thing about comparing chicken egg and bone is that you could say, well, it's not really an apples to apples comparison because here you have this organic shell membrane and then the material grows from there. But in fact, it doesn't just grow as pure calcium carbonate because if it did, it would essentially be a brittle ceramic and it would be like a teacup that you dropped. It is much tougher than that and it is much tougher because the collagen actually shows up in a second place. So as that mineral is depositing, additional collagen gets interwoven in with the calcite and so you have about 3% organic content there, 3% um, protein, a little bit of water and then a dominant amount of this calcium carbonate mineral. If you compare that to bone, it's a much different story. Bone has a significant fraction of its volume that's mineral um, and a significant fraction that's organic and water. So it's about a 50-50 mix of those two. As I said, it's calcium phosphate for bone, calcium carbonate for eggshell, but the same protein collagen in both cases. So this gives us a really interesting parameter space to work on when we think about this as engineers, because we can see that we can take these approximately similar components, put them together in different proportions, make different things. So now we wanna do this. We wanna make artificial bone, make artificial eggshell. How do we get there? We know what the components are. We know it's got protein and mineral, but what do we do? Do we just mix them together? That's probably not going to work. We have to do some sort of imitation of putting these together the way they were put together in the body, which means we have to do something where we form the protein and then deposit ions around such that we can um, form the mineral directly on the protein. Now, this is a very interesting side diversion. Um, I had a PhD student who was brilliant and who was studying this project the very, very beginning, early in my days in Cambridge. And he was doing things that were boring and repetitive, as students often do. And he came to me one day and he said, I have this wild idea. I think I could automate this process with a Lego robotics kit. And I was sort of, admittedly in tune with this idea because I happen to have one at home. <laughs> because that's the sad truth of the matter. You want to talk about stereotypes about engineers, plays with Lego in their spare time as an adult? I'm afraid so. So we did this. We built this robot. He built this robot. Um, and uh, there's a very fun video of this online. So if you, um, if you Google something like Lego bone Cambridge, you will come up with a fantastic stop motion video of us making artificial bone 
using the Lego robots, which is why if you Google my name on its own, Google auto-suggests Michelle Oyen Lego. <laughs> Career goals, right? I am a serious Cambridge academic, I really am. Anyway, what we do with this robot is we take something, and in this case, this is just shown with a little metal screw, and we dip it into different solutions that have these different components that we know are associated with the formation of bone or of eggshell. So this is an example of that. You can put some gelatin, which is just a denatured collagen, in with um, a calcium ion, a phosphate or a carbonate ion, and then have some water baths. And so you just dip your substrate alternately in these different things. And now you can see why the PhD student got bored really quickly and why the Lego robot was actually quite a good idea. It turns out, we've discovered now, you can actually buy for about 20,000 quid dipping machines for doing this. And this is why we as engineers win, because we think Lego instead. <laughs> Costs a couple hundred quid, totally big difference. Okay, so you do this over and over and over again, and at first what you form, and you can see on the left in the background there, you can see the fibrils of the collagen, that is actually on a piece of this eggshell membrane. So we take the shell off, which you can do just by dipping an egg in vinegar, so my lab smells like a chip shop. You can remove the shell, you get back to the form that it was before the shell was deposited, and you can try and re-mineralize it. So you do this a couple times, you get what you see on the left there, you keep doing it for a while, and you start to see these crystals grow bigger and bigger. And as I said, the special sauce here is the collagen. If you take this same system and you do the same exact program with the Lego, with the chemicals that are identical, but you do it on a piece of glass with no collagen, you basically get nothing. And if you do that on the eggshell membrane with the collagen, you get an awful lot of material. So you have to have the collagen in order to make this process work. And that's good for us because that tells us now what we can do do for the next stage of mimicking. So just to prove to you that I'm not being all theoretical, these are some macroscopic images of this process um, showing that you can make things that you can pick up, you can touch, you can hold. In fact, we measure their mechanical properties. We show that they're actually about the same stiffness as real bone. Um, you can do the same with um, the eggshell. It's not quite as successful. We're still working on it. We don't know why, but the bone in particular, you can make these pieces that you can handle millimeters in scale over the course of a short period of time, and remember, under ambient conditions, so just at lab temperature. Now, I said we needed the collagen, and we needed the eggshell membrane, and that's a bit of an issue. Um, somebody actually asked me the first time I gave a public talk on this subject, would we have a problem with not having vegetarian buildings? It's a perfectly good point because we are using collagen that was made from animals. And so the next phase of this research has actually been to try and make an artificial eggshell membrane, artificial collagen. So what we do is we take a polymer solution and stick it in a syringe pump and you put a what is to a supervisor of PhD students horribly scary voltage across it, so something like 20 kilovolts over a 10 centimeter, 15 centimeter working distance. And actually what happens is that you get a 
effect where the electrical field interacts with the polymer solution and it forms fibers. The picture on the lower left is just a real picture of our lab setup and you can see there's this sort of droplet coming out in the inset of the syringe needle and then there's this tiny fiber coming off of it and then the fibers get smaller and smaller as they go towards the target. It doesn't look like much when you look at it at macroscopic scales. It just looks like a piece of sort of white stuff but when you go and zoom in on it with a scanning electron microscope, you've actually made fibrils that are very small and that look very much like collagen. So I didn't elaborate a huge amount on the bumps on the picture on the right of the natural eggshell membrane. That's the next spot that we're working on. So there are some proteins there that are thought to induce mineralization, and that's why that's where the calcite and the eggshell starts to really grow. And so we're working on that and going to use some sort of microcontact printing, again, using a very engineering approach for fabrication to try and take this to the next step to make a completely artificial eggshell membrane so that we can in the future make vegetarian buildings. So my question, and admittedly this is a wild one, we're talking about my laboratory research which is making centimeter scale components and if I want to make buildings obviously this has to be scaled up, that takes money, but it also takes will, it takes a group of persons who have the money thinking that this is worthwhile to do. And so I'm making the argument that yes, we can and we should rethink how we build things and what our modern cities look like. The motivation hopefully is clear and hopefully I've convinced you that steel and concrete are actually a big part of the overall carbon footprint problem. We know that incremental approaches are not enough. And this is the argument. I have a fantastic colleague in the Department of Engineering at Cambridge who is one of the world's leading experts on trying to make more efficient power plants. And we often get asked to speak in the same symposium back to back. And it's turned into a bit of a war because he wants to make incrementally better power plants and I want to break the system and start over. So I think the answer is, of course, you do both because in the short term, if you can make your power plants more efficient, that's good. But in the long term, if we want to save this planet, you know, even the Paris Agreement is pretty, pretty modest in its goals. So maybe we should be thinking a little bit bigger. Nature has many model materials to study. I've only been talking about two because they're the two that I happen to be playing with in my own lab. But other scientists working in biomimetics have been very interested in artificial spider silk, artificial tree bark, and in particular, artificial seashell. Seashells, of course, have been tumbling in the water and are still intact when you pick them up on the beach and are even tougher than eggshell. So there's fundamental things about these materials, how they're put together, their composite nature between the protein and the mineral that gives them properties that are just so far superior to anything that we as engineers have ever come up with um, that this has become a field of more and more people studying and trying to make artificial seashell materials. And I guess part of my, uh, my, my, my overall view of the world is that big problems, in order to get solutions, you sometimes have to go really outside the box and run with wild ideas. Who knew that we would actually be able to make real materials that were properly mimicking bone using something as simple as 
uh, chemical components that we can buy off the shelf that cost very little money, room temperature, room conditions, um, and Lego robots. And so hopefully, with any luck, we can get to a point where I can worry less about the future of my beach holidays because I can ensure that we won't have sea rise completely overwhelming the uh, barrier islands out on the Outer Banks. Um, and with that, I'd be happy to take any questions. Somebody with microphones? Oh, yep, sorry, go ahead. Hi, that's really interesting. Um, has anyone tried doing, um, using uh, GM wood or, you know, bamboo or something, and putting more minerals or collagen or something in it to make it better? Yep, yeah, no, there's, um, so bamboo is an interesting one because it's very fast growing. Um, and it's very fire resistant, which is something that, of course, there's always questions with timber about, um, especially in this country. I'm convinced nobody's gotten over the London fire in 1666. I've never lived in a place that had so many fire drills in my life. Um, but yes, and so so there's there's been a lot of work recently on bamboo because it's fast growing, um, on making wood polymer composites. A lot of the modern engineered timber is actually composite, so they don't just take trees. They take trees and essentially shred them, mix them with a sort of polymer binder or glue, and then make them into sheets. Um, and so there is a lot in that area. Um, GMO is really expensive. So I think the technology has to go somewhere for a while before the price comes down. Again, on a lab scale, comparable to the kind of stuff that I'm doing, there are people doing that. In fact, there are people in Cambridge doing that. My colleague who works on the timber skyscrapers has a center for natural materials research in the architecture department, and that's kind of the direction people have been going. But I think the GMO thing, it's, it's not clear to me what you would modify about the wood or about the bamboo that would give you enough bang for your buck to make it worth the cost. But we'll see, it could change. Uh, given where you've got to with uh, Neobone at the moment, um, how high could you build with it, or, or putting the question in a slightly different way, how big would the windows be? <laughs> so, so this is where I can actually answer the question because of this fantastic analogy where it's very similar to wood and its properties. And so when you do build with wood, you do have to accommodate the fact that wood does not have the properties of steel by an order of magnitude. Um, and so you don't build buildings that are as sparse. But the buildings that I've seen both envisaged in the planning stage and in the construction phase and even the, the recently completed ones, they do really clever things where they, you know, architects actually design the building to the material. So instead of thinking up the most fantastic uh, design of a building that they can think of then trying to figure out how would I do this, they say, okay, we're gonna build a wood building, so these are the properties we have. And so as a result, what you see is a lot of cross trusses and things like that that they're doing for structural stability so as to not have to have the window problem. And so you can kind of design around it if that's your goal. And I think that's really exciting because that's, as I said, it's taking 
It's making lemonade a little bit, saying, okay, I'm absolutely determined that for environmental reasons, I'm gonna build this building out of wood, so then what do I do to make it structurally sound? When it comes to replacing concrete, you've got issues with placing the stuff, for example. Um, I'm in an industry tunneling where we spray it on the wall and it goes yeah. off in, and then alternatively, you don't want it to go off until you're ready. Where about where, where do you how does that work with the bone? <laughs> so, so, so in fact, the second generation of the Lego robot project was building a sprayer, and so what we did was we took um, we took airbrush nozzles, and instead of having something that you dipped, we had a substrate that went around on a loop and got sprayed with the four different solutions um, for exactly that reason. So, I mean, obviously, when you're a researcher like me, you're trying to think about, um, first of all, you want to know, is it possible to make this material that's like bone, and is it possible to do it cheaply because research is expensive. Um, but then, yes, exactly as you say, the second generation, we did build a spraying system um, rigged together with all sorts of um, old washing machines, solenoid valves and stuff. We're very MacGyver in engineering. We kind of like to go and find things and duct tape it all together and, you know, make it work. Um, it's not always about making it pretty. Um, but I think, you know, that's exactly why we were doing that. And so I think the future is in some combination of casting and spraying to be able to make parts in the shapes and sizes that you want, but as you say, to have exquisite control of where you're putting the material. Thank you. Um, do you have an idea of the time scale um, that bone could be used as a realistic building material? And are there any other materials or techniques which are closer to um, being used by industry? Well, I think the timber example is a good one because that's starting to become a thing now. Um, um, and that's because, uh, you know, in part, there's a, a, a whole further complication in this story that the legal framework of civil engineering is built on the building code, and the current building code is built upon making things out of steel and concrete. And to some extent, there is extensions of that for wood, and there are people understand how to build timber structures. But if you want to introduce a new material, it's no more simple than if you want to introduce a new material for putting as an implant into the body. You have to go through a lot of phases of testing and proving reliability and all of that. So I think in order for something like this to be adopted, it would have to be that you had the co-evolution of both the materials technology, but also the building codes and buy-in from the construction industry. Uh, the, you started off with um, some orthopedics. Yes. Um, and you illustrated your uh, laboratory materials that you're able to produce a sort of petri dish scale. Uh, if you increase that by an order of magnitude, you're getting up to bone scales. Yep. To go up to architectural stuff, you're increasing by numerous more orders of magnitude. Yes. How close are you to spinning out your technology actually back into orthopedics with, say, whole bone um, implants? I will absolutely admit that I have not been working in the orthopedics area for some time. Um, that was where I did my PhD, but when I came out of my PhD and came to Cambridge, 
course, one of the great things that happens when you're a new PI and you get to make your own lab and you get to decide what you want to work on is I had this idea about using bone as a structural material and so started pursuing it wholly down that area. And so I have not done even the most simple basic biocompatibility tests with this material. I have, I have bone cells in the lab. I could do it. But because my purpose for doing it wasn't that, I haven't actually done that. So I haven't been pursuing it in that direction. Um, there are other artificial bone-like materials similar to this that um, are available. Um, again, not commercially yet, but in research labs that are produced in other ways. Um, and I think, you know, I think that is coming to the clinic. Some form of that is coming to the clinic. There's already porous hydroxyapatite scaffold type things based on bone mineral that are getting to be closer and closer to routine use. So I think that's happening over in parallel to what I'm doing with a very different focus. So. All right, if that's it, thank you very much for your attention.